Uh, welcome everyone to worship here at Arapahoe UMC, and if you're just joining us online, welcome to you as well. My name is Scott Gilliland. I'm the senior pastor here, and I know that this is a natural time of year and, and season in life that people look for a new home church, perhaps. And so, if that sounds like you, number one, I hope that you uh, have an inspiring and uplifting and meaningful experience this morning, and. If you would like to learn more about who we are as a church, you can go online to arapahoumc.org slash connect, and you can reach out to us, and we'll be happy to reach back out to you um, to grab a cup of coffee or answer any questions you might have. Friends, um, you might be surprised to know that I love podcasts now because talk radio used to make me cry. Let me explain. Growing up, my family would twice a year load up the car and take a road trip to see my mom's side of the family tree. And not just for a few hours, no, it was an all-day affair, sometimes to Mississippi, sometimes all the way to Georgia, early in the morning until late into the night kind of road trip. We would often caravan with my aunt and my cousins, which means that I would often beg to ride into my cousin's car because I was just certain that me and my cousins would have the most fun all day long. What I learned quickly, however, is that my cousins are narcoleptic in the car. <laughs> and they would essentially enter a comatose state for the entire length of the journey from driveway to driveway. And so when I was very young, maybe five or six, I was riding in my aunt's car, sandwiched between my cousins in the middle of the back seat, each of them with their head leaning against the respective windows, mouths agape, snores galore. We had not even made it out of Dallas County yet. And my aunt decides that a quiet car and a long day or a day-long drive was the perfect time to enjoy NPR. She's enjoying the soothing sounds of overeducated liberals talking too closely into their microphones when somewhere between Tyler and Shreveport, she hears something in the back seat, a soft sniffle, a whimper, and she looks in the rearview mirror to see me wiping a tear from my cheek. Scott, honey, what is wrong? I'm just so bored, Aunt Debbie. <laughs> 30 years later, my thoughts on road trips and my listening habits have changed quite a bit. I, I love road trips. I, I love traveling with three kids, meaning that I'm going to get to play real-life Tetris with all the stuff that we have to bring with us, like we're planning to settle a new town upon arrival. I love the pep talk that I have to give my four-year-old son as we pull into a gas station for a bathroom break. Seriously, bud, do not touch anything. <laughs> I love stopping at Bucky's on the way out of town to load up on all of the unhealthy road trip snacks. I, yes, say amen, somebody. I love binging podcasts while my kids enjoy their tear-free iPads. Times have changed just a bit. But what I love most is putting my destination into my app and seeing the estimated time of arrival and embracing this as a challenge, a quest even, and then doing everything in my power to make it to Kansas City or Mississippi in the time that Google believes that I can and should. You've got to start, you've got to finish, you've got an algorithmically perfect route, and everything in between is simply in the way of the goal. Where are my people at, right? <laughs> The New Year's season can feel a bit like that. Sitting in the driveway on the edge of a long road trip, a lot of us have an idea of where we would like to be or who we would like to be in a year's time. 
call them resolutions or goals or call it a vision board or dress it up however you want. It's natural to start a new year and to think about these things, to make plans around these things, perhaps plans that have already begun to unravel. Uh Uh-oh. But I wonder how our faith, and specifically in our Wesleyan or Methodist understanding of our faith, how that could help us in this moment to clarify where we think we're heading and what's most important as we begin yet another year journeying around the sun. In the book of Exodus, chapter 32, the Israelite people are on the edge of a journey. With liberation from Egypt firmly in the rearview mirror, they're on the other side of the Red Sea now, and yet unknowingly 40 years away from their destination of the promised land. Moses is their spiritual leader, and he's gathered, or the people rather, are gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai, where they are waiting for Moses to descend from the mountain. See, he's been meeting with God on Mount Sinai for many days, establishing a covenant relationship with God, and receiving necessary instructions for the journey that is to come. And the people grow anxious and impatient in the waiting and the stillness and the silence. He was supposed to be back by now, I think. They decide to confront Moses, or Moses' brother Aaron, rather, who has been Moses' right-hand man and his voice in the story so far. And so we begin in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, and the author says this. The people saw that Moses was taking a long time to come down from the mountain. They gathered around Aaron and said to him, come on, make us gods who can lead us. As for this man Moses who brought us up for the land, out of the land of Egypt, we don't have a clue what has happened to him. And Aaron said to them, all right, take out the gold rings from the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took out the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He collected them and tied them up in a cloth. Then he, began, then he made a metal image of a bull calf. And the people declared, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So a few things are happening here. First, there's the dramatic irony of what the people are doing while Moses is up on the mountain. Moses is receiving explicit instructions on how to build and transport a worship tent that will house the literal spirit of God as they move throughout the wilderness. He's also receiving the Ten Commandments, the laws that are meant to define the people of God moving forward. And of course, you may know the first two laws are, one, have no other gods, and two, make no idols. So the Israelite people are 0 for 2 out of the gates. And secondly, there's the nature of the idol itself. Bull worship, worshiping a bull figure, was fairly common in those days in various cultures, notably in Egypt where the god Apis, illustrated as a bull, was commonly worshipped as an intermediary between humans and more powerful deities. Also, famous historical figures were frequently depicted as bulls, including Joseph, the patriarch who, in Genesis, rose to great power in Egypt and saved the nation from starvation. Regardless the source of the bull image, though, the overall point is this. While the people of God are mere moments away from receiving back their spiritual leader, as well as the power to walk in the Spirit of God for the entire journey to come, they find themselves focused instead on crafting a crude likeness of something they think might have saved them and maybe will lead them where they want to go. 
The golden calf is a crass casting of what we think might be God. Idolatry is a subject that can get mishandled frequently in Christian context. We we tend to trivialize the subject by making it about all the little things that occupy our time or the bad habits that we wish we could break. Like we'll talk about, ugh, I feel like my phone has become such an idol in my life or social media is just like this golden calf that I have to get over. And don't get me wrong, self-improvement is important. Look at your phone less, talk to real people more. Yeah, 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 all that is good stuff. But I don't think that's what the author of Exodus 32 is trying to talk about. And yeah, there's a joke in here somewhere about tablets and the Ten Commandments and iPads, but I'm too lazy to figure it out, so let's just move on. (laughs) Idolatry is about a trade that we make from God to, to something of a cheap knockoff. I've got a buddy in Missouri who frequently makes the road trip down here to Texas, and he loves, he shares my love of Bucky's. But one time we were talking about Bucky's. If you don't know, how do you not know? It's like the super massive mega, ga- to call it a gas station is to be rude, quite frankly. It's so much more than that. And he says to me, you know, they're basically really big versions of Casey's. And if you don't know, Casey's is a massive chain of gas stations in and around the Midwest. And don't get me wrong, they got clean bathrooms and they got decent food options if you're in a pinch, but you can't buy handmade fudge or home goods or a full wardrobe of branded clothing or a life-size stuffed animal beaver. So my friends, it ain't Bucky's, right? (laughs) Idolatry is trading the set apart, the special, the mountaintop and mysterious and receiving instead a cheap knockoff. Idolatry is not about bad habits. It's, it's about what we place our faith in as the source of both our past salvation and our future hope. The story of the Israelites in the Hebrew Bible is one where their relationship with God is inherently connected to their well-being and existence in an inhospitable and frequently inhumane world, idolatry is existential, not trivial, because to to trade God in for a cheap knockoff, to forget the power and presence of God in that kind of a way is to forget oneself and to be forgotten. The author is saying, if God becomes a cheap knockoff, then so do we. And so, if not stuff or, or bad habits, then what might we consider idolatrous today? My brain goes to the little G gods, the cheap knockoffs that we regularly reach for as individuals in a larger society. We, for instance, trade the grace of God for the cheap knockoff of unchecked, unaccountable bad behavior. We trade God's righteous anger at injustice for the cheap knockoff of reactionary outrage. Uh oh. We trade humility for supremacy. We trade loving kindness for politeness. We trade hope for cynicism. We trade a God who is cosmically large, wild and wondrous, liberating and limitless, who names all people good and beautiful, and we trade that in for a cheap knockoff God who is small and tame and contained and limited, who is on my side and serves my purposes and happens to love and hate all the same people that I do. Isn't that something? Idolatry ah, insidiously gives us the impression of serving God 
And it's critical that we stop regularly and ask ourselves the question, who am I offering my devotion? And is it time to deconstruct some golden calves once again? So Moses was on the mountain establishing a covenant with God. There are several moments of covenant making in the Hebrew Bible between God and different leaders and people. And the common thread between them all is this, that our lives and the lives of others and the life of the world would be improved through living aligned with God. That's the essence of the covenant. But what's interesting is that covenants are always future-oriented, future but God does not offer a clear, definitive timeline about that future. Oh, God, you are so frustrating sometimes. It's not just about what we do or the ultimate destination, but ultimately it's about how we get from here to there. The behavior God expects, the spirit that we are called to embody, the boundaries that help define how life might be different moving forward. In the Christian faith... Baptism is a covenantal act. And in the United Methodist tradition, our baptismal liturgy emphasizes not only the idea that we have experienced salvation through Jesus, but that God's Spirit is leading us into a way of life aligned with the liberating power that we have experienced. Today is one of the natural times in the year that we remember and renew our baptisms as Christians. And later in the service, for those who wish to, you'll have the opportunity to interact with baptismal waters and to renew your own baptism. I know not everyone here is baptized, and some of us are not in a place in our faith where professing faith or that kind of language makes sense. And of course, we hope to be a church that can honor everyone's place in their journey no matter where we are or where that journey leads us. But I hope this reflection is helpful nonetheless. In the UMC, we traditionally ask three questions as we approach the baptismal waters. And I'm going to walk us through each three, and we'll have responses that we share as a collective body as well. First, we ask about sin, which is a loaded term to be sure. But essentially, the question asks, do we as individuals recognize our own harmful tendencies and desire to be and do better? And so I ask you, the people of God, will you turn away from the powers of sin and death? And we can see the response and join together on the screen. We renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of our sin. And, and the second traditional question is one that acknowledges the agency that we have as people and the life, that the life of faith is inherently connected to a life in service of goodness and of justice and of liberation. And so I ask you, will you let the Spirit use you as prophets to the powers that be? And we say together, we accept the freedom and power God gives us to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. And the third question challenges us to remember that every person, every person is beloved and worthy of a seat at the table of grace. We're challenged to see siblings where we might first wish to see enemies. We're reminded that God is God and we embrace the humble role of living in service to the larger kingdom of God. And so again, I ask you, will you proclaim the good news and live as disciples of Jesus Christ, his body on earth? And we say together, we confess Jesus Christ as our Savior, put our whole trust in his grace, and promise to serve him as our Lord. 
in union with the church which Christ has opened to people of all ages, nations, and races. You know, it feels good to return to these waters, but these waters also have ripple effects. And we don't know the destination, but we do understand the way we are called to exist in between. This year we're facing an election year. Had you heard that, by the way? (laughs) How might the waters of baptism wash over you, wash over us, before we rage tweet or doom scroll, hyper-focused on the insanity of our least favorite political figures? Will we remember that God calls us to look inward first? Will you accept the power and freedom to stand up for justice and the rights of marginalized people as they are once again used as nothing more than political footballs? Will you resist the temptation, right now you're saying, "Mm, wait for this one. Will you resist the temptation to view people as the caricatures that propaganda would lead you to? Yes, the propaganda that you consume and I consume, we all do. And instead, remember that Jesus has set a place for them just as Jesus has set a place for you. Yes, the person you're thinking of right now that you hope I'm not talking about. This year, we're facing a global legislative gathering in our own denomination that could allow for greater inclusion of LGBTQ persons in the larger denomination. Will we, the church, allow baptism to wash over us, I wonder? Will we recognize that we don't have it all figured out here at AUMC and continue to lean forward into the challenging work that is inclusion and diversity and equity? Will we be a living testimony to our larger church that an inclusive church and a diversifying church is a vibrant and growing church? Will we hold space at the table for the people and communities who are not where we are theologically? Ah, not with an air of superiority, but with an invitational spirit. And this year, I know for a fact that you are facing challenges that only you know that I couldn't possibly give voice to right now, and many that you don't see coming. Will the waters of baptism wash over your personal life as well, allowing you to be rooted in your identity as a beloved child of God, giving you the courage to face the future as an agent of both truth and grace and leading you to receive your seat at the table and to set the place for someone else. And so the covenant that Moses makes with God has no clear destination. And in fact, Moses never enters the promised land. How about that? He famously makes it just to the border and then is not allowed to enter By my metrics of a successful road trip, he failed spectacularly. But by the call of covenant, he succeeds. Because again, covenant is more about how to journey well rather than how to get where you want to go. As a United Methodist Church, we come from the tradition of John Wesley, who is an Anglican priest who lived a few hundred years ago. In addition to remembering our baptisms, we have a tradition of renewing our own covenant with God at the start of a new year. And a UMC pastor recently updated this classic Wesleyan covenant prayer, and I find it incredibly grounding as I also set goals to read more and eat better. Or was that eat more and read better? I can't remember. And so I invite all of us to pray this prayer together as we embrace the unknown that is the year to come, 
finding our hope in God as our covenant companion for this journey. In just a moment, we will pray the words that you see on the screen, and then we will center ourselves in a moment of quiet meditation as we sit in the driveway of 2024 and embrace the truth that you don't know, I don't know, we don't know, and Google Maps doesn't know where the journey will take us. And that's why we call this a life of faith. Would you pray with me? I am not my own self-made, self-reliant human being. In truth, O God, I am yours. Make me into what you will. Make me a neighbor with those whom you will. Guide me on the easy path for you. Guide me on the rocky road for you. Whether I am to step up for you or step aside for you. Whether I am to be lifted high for you or brought low for you. Whether I become full or empty, with all things or with nothing, I give all that I have and all that I am for you. So be it. And may I always remember that you, O oh God, and I belong to each other. Amen. Let us spend some time in quiet reflection and meditation.